Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Elissa Branch, and this is HousingWire Daily. Today's episode of Houses in Motion features a very special interview with Cheval Shaw, the CEO of Ribbon. Cheval joined Housing Wire reporter Matthew Blake today to discuss Ribbon's cash-buying value proposition and their long-term business model in a changing market. He also talks about the problem of the seemingly growing number of investors buying up single-family homes. But before you listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Regora is an appraisal management software company dedicated to modernizing residential appraisal and valuation. With configurable automations and embedded LOS and POS integrations, Regora brings speed, transparency, and control to the appraisal process. Lenders across the country are seeing impressive efficiency gains and cost reductions with Regora's platform, including a 213% increase in appraisal capacity, a 35% reduction in turn times, and saving 20 minutes per loan file. Learn more at regora.com. That's R-E-G-G-O-R-A.com. Hello, and welcome to Houses in Motion, a podcast that is part of Housing Wire Daily. My name is Matthew Blake, real estate reporter with Housing Wire. My guest this week is Shavel Shaw, the CEO of Ribbon. Ribbon is part of the latest wave of venture capital infused companies looking to quote unquote, shake up residential real estate. They are a so-called power buyer. Now, before you turn off this podcast, sick of hearing from another person who thinks they figured out how to outsmart a staid real estate market, please let me explain. What Ribbon does, which Shaw lucidly explains and discusses, is that they facilitate a cash offer for people shopping for a home and then charge the home buyer an eventual fee for this offer. Now, Ribbon is again a VC-infused for-profit corporation on the make, but this idea is intriguing because it carries with it a patena of social responsibility. Ribbon is trying to get everyday consumers, including consumers perhaps with Federal Housing Administration or Veterans Affairs loans, a cash offer so they can compete in fierce bidding wars for homes. The business model abounds with questions about where our country is going with its housing stock. Are we locked into years of bidding wars? Are corporate investors banding about their own cash offers a growing threat to the American dream of home ownership? And where does the real estate agent fit into all of this? I hope you found this discussion with Shaw informative and diverting. Please email me thoughts and questions to mblake at housingwire.com. That's M-B-L-A-K-E at housingwire.com. Welcome to Houses in Motion, part of the Housing Wire Daily podcast series. I am here with Shevel Shaw, the CEO of Ribbon. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. It's nice to be here. So, Shevel, 
What does Ribbon do? So uh, it's a great question. So let me tell you, I can, I can share this in terms of like at a high level and then what we do from the lens of the home buyer. Cool. And so we are a modern home buying platform to enable home ownership. And if you look at this from the lens of the home buyer and what we do, um, if you take a, if you take an example, like put yourself in the shoe of a home buyer, um, you know, home buyers will typically go out, they will find a real estate agent, they will get pre-approved for a mortgage, uh, and they'll go home shopping. And when they go home shopping, they will see four or five homes. And usually by this time, they've been briefed by their agent or their lender that we're in a pretty hyper-competitive housing market right now. Um, so they're going out seeing homes very, very quickly. Um, they identify a home of interest. Um, they typically will start to feel like emotionally connected to that home. They start identifying mm -hmm. into that home and they get really, really excited. So like at this point, you're at peak of excitement as a home buyer. Um, and so we say, this great. Let's make an offer on the home. I've worked directly with my real estate agent. And then here's where it gets really interesting. So real estate agent and the home buyer will start to figure out what's the right price on the home. Mm -hmm. So look at comparables in the market. They will look at what is the pre-approval amount. And then ultimately, what's the willingness to pay by the home buyer? And they submit, let's say, for example, a $300,000 offer on a home. They say, that's the amount that we think is the right price. Um, so they feel very informed about that number. They put an offer of 300. And so as a real estate agent is constructing the contract, they'll get to a section which says, great, how are you going to pay for this home? And so they look at the pre-approval letter and it says, okay, we are going to require financing. So we will close on this home, assuming you get a mortgage. Mm -hmm. And it'll say, we also need to make sure we get an appraisal because if we're going to get a mortgage, we have to get an appraisal on the home. Mm -hmm. And we may also need to sell our existing home because 60% of all home buyers are existing homeowners. So they may need to sell their existing home in order to buy the new home. And because of all these three things, these are the contingencies in the contract, we're going to need 45 to 60 days to close on the home. And so now, and why? Because it takes about 51 days to get a mortgage. So I feel pretty good as a home buyer. I submit the offer. Um, the next day, we get a response back from the listing agent, which is, thank you for your offer. It was deeply considered. However, we've decided to go with another offer. Yeah. And this is happening all the time, multiple offer situations. People's offers are constantly being declined and people are wondering why. Well, if you put yourself in the shoes of the home seller, right? Like the psychology of the home seller, if you're a home buyer, the psychology is great. I just received your offer. Now I'm going to compare it against the three or four other offers. Mm-hmm. And in the other offers, the price might have been very similar, maybe even been a little bit lower. But in some of the other offers, um, there were buyers who said, we don't need to worry about getting financing through a mortgage. We don't need to worry about an appraisal. And because of those things, we don't have to worry about whether we have a home to sell or not. And so the seller says, wonderful. Uh, and because of that, we can bid for 15 days to close. And so the seller is saying, I'm optimizing for, close, for certainty of close because I most likely have to go buy a new home. Mm -hmm. So we always talk to home buyers and, and real estate agents and lenders about put yourselves in the shoes of the seller when you're making an offer on a home. The seller will always optimize for certainty. So what's the difference in those two offers? The offer that's accepted is typically a cash offer. Mm -hmm. And who has cash offers? Those typically tend to be high net worth individuals or institutional investors. Right. So home buyers are constantly competing directly into this market today. What we do is we... Um, it's a really, really simple process where the agent can just, your agent can automatically add ribbon to your offer and that mm -hmm. automatically converts your offer into an all cash offer. So okay. as a home buyer, I still need to get a mortgage to purchase the home, but we are stepping in to protect 
that situation and allow you to be able to make a cash offer. And if your mortgage isn't ready in time, we will step in and buy your home on your behalf for $300,000. And then when your mortgage is ready two months later, you'll then get your mortgage and we transfer the home back to you for $300,000. And so not only do we help you make a competitive offer that has about a four to eight times higher likelihood of winning, but we also give you an extra six months to secure financing so you can get the best rate, find the best lender, and have the peace of mind of closing with some space, not all within 30 or 45 days. And so that's how what we really do for home buyers. So we increase their chance of winning by almost 8x. And we give them the protection that we will buy their home if they need more time. So we give them time and increased chance of winning. Okay. And so I think that's a very clear explanation of how you guys help home buyers in terms of how ribbon benefits from the transaction as a business. Is there a fee that you're charging home buyers? Yeah. So we charge, so we have really kind of two or three different products. Um, so some home buyers, about 75% of home buyers today that we work with, um, we'll make a cash offer for them, but they will be able to close on their mortgage in time. Mm-hmm. That costs one percent. Uh, and okay. I'll talk about I'll talk about who actually pays for that fee and how that's constructed, um, because in most cases, home buyers are actually making money using our program. Um, so if we need to step in and buy the home to give you more time, then we'll charge the service fee, um, plus we will cover then the closing costs. That usually is around two percent. Okay. So. Uh, uh, about 1% of that is for the service fee. And the other uh, half of that is to be able to cover the closing costs. So we buy the home on your behalf. Um, and so that's typically how it works. Those are, that's the other 20, 25% of transactions um, is where we step in and buy the home on behalf of the consumer. So in general, we make about a 1% service fee. And when the, the customer, the ribbon client is able to purchase the home that you've already purchased for cash for say $300,000, is like the mortgage of that person like transferred over to Ribbon or does like the bank that made the loan to the person give Ribbon the money? How does that work? Yeah. So typically what happened is when we, if we, let's say we bought you a home um, mm-hmm. where you are, when you go to secure your financing, let's say it was $300,000, um, you're effectively purchasing the home back from Ribbon. So your lender will fund that transaction. That's how Ribbon gets repaid. Okay. You take on title and ownership. You put your down payment in with your lender. Okay. So it's exactly the same type of transaction. We just become the seller of record. Interesting. And how long has Ribbon been around for? So we started in 2017, um, and we were really in a pilot phase through 2018, um, and really kind of designed the program, built out the distribution models with the real estate agents, um, and now in 2020 to, um, to the lender community. And, um, and then have expanded markets. So we're now operating in North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, and Texas. And we're about to launch with um, Alabama and Virginia. And so we're rapidly expanding states and we should be in about half the country by the end of 2022. And is there anything you can say about how many deals you've done so far? Yeah, so we've enabled about a billion dollars of transactions this year. Okay. Uh, and we're now with the capital raise that we've done, we can now do about $10 billion in volume on an annual basis going forward. Why did you choose mostly Southern states to get started? You know, it's, it's a really good question. Um, one, the company headquarters um, started in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of the nature of real estate, and th- there's a lot of nuances in the real estate economy, and that's the combination of the real estate broker economy the lender economy, and obviously the home economy. And 
So we wanted to make sure that we our first market was in a market that was close to New York so that we could get there really, really quickly. That was really important. From an operational excellence perspective, we want to make mm-hmm. sure we have a really close presence to the markets. Um, but the other reason why was we looked at um, all the cash offers that were being made across the country. And on the average, across the country, one out of every three homes are bought in the form of cash. It's about $500 billion. So it's a really, really big, sizable piece of the market. And so we looked at where are markets that are trending above 33%. Mm-hmm. And one of those markets was Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and at the time, it was the fastest growing market in the country, one of the largest positive migration patterns, people moving into Charlotte from places like New York and Boston and other Northeast cities. And a lot of people were coming in with cash and they were putting pressure on the everyday family in those local communities. And that was from a mission perspective, what we're really trying to do, we're trying to level the playing field for everyday families in the local community so they don't get displaced. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went into Charlotte and that became mm-hmm. our first market. And then we just naturally started growing all through the Southeast. And so, you know, by the end of this year, we'll be largely in all the Southeast and then we're going to go to the Midwest and then go out to the West Coast. And so you described how Ribbon works for the home buyer. How does it work for the real estate agent? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think one thing to note is that um, Real estate agents are 100% commissioned. So their success is completely connected to the success of their client and their client's ability to um, secure an offer and then be able to close on the home. And so we actually partner with the real estate agent community. So we don't have any in-house agents. We're not a brokerage. We partner with, um, with real estate agents so that they can actually introduce the solution to the client, mm. be able to make a more competitive offer on behalf of the client. And so this helps, A, it helps the agents provide a better service to their client. Two, it helps them increase the likelihood of the offers that they do submit are going to be accepted. And then three, because we have a guaranteed closing, it also guarantees the commissions of the agents. And so because of this, we help them increase the conversion of all their clients into homeownership, which in turn allows them to go out to the market and actually win new business. Everything that we have built was built for real estate agents. Mm. So. At Ribbon, you cannot sign up as an everyday consumer today. You have to sign up. You can only be invited by your real estate agent or your lender. Interesting. And so the software layer that we built was purpose-built for the agent community where we allow them to, we have a whole offers platform where they can easily get their buyers um, approved in under 24 hours and directly make their offers on our platform in a digital way that allows them to make faster, simpler, easier offers because speed is so important in this market. We launched a mobile app for real estate agents. Mm-hmm. And so agents can make offers on the go because you know, if you really care about the agent and you care about what they're going through, they're always on the road. They're never right. home. And so they will get a call at two o'clock one day from one of their clients saying, we're ready to make an offer on 123 Elm Street. And they need, they need to be able to pull out their phone and be able to act very, very quickly. And so building software, building a, an experience that helps the agent, um, helps the consumer. Mm-hmm. And so they get the normal buyer's agent commission that they would have otherwise gotten on, on that home. And that's on top of like the fee that the consumer pays to Ribbon. Exactly. So the real estate agents, um, they collect their traditional fee. Yeah. And typically, they're actually collecting fees on more transactions than they normally would because we're guaranteed the closings. Mm-hmm. One out of every three transactions without ribbon will either fall through or be severely delayed. 
Mm-hmm. So we we actually help them not only collect their full commission on a closed transaction, but just close more transactions. And so the the use of the real estate agent is pretty interesting to me because I cover iBuyers a lot. And as we'll get into, Ribbon is not an iBuyer, definite contrast between what you do and what they do. But oftentimes the iBuyers open door comes to mind, you know, they work with agents as well, but part of what they do is kind of like, we need to disrupt the traditional transaction. We need to give consumers the ability to sort of directly buy and sell homes themselves. So why is your company's philosophy to continue to work with the real estate agent? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. And it's, and it's a pretty st- significant distinction in the models. Um, so on day one, we defined ourselves as a home buying platform built to support the open ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so since day one, we've been operating this way. And there's a couple of reasons. One is 91% of all real estate transactions today have a real estate agent. That number has actually increased, not decreased. Um, a lot of technology companies, lost Silicon Valley, have been talking about the disruption of the real estate agent. And the real right. estate agent has actually gotten stronger and stronger because that's what consumers want. And we honored that and respect that. And we saw that. Um, and so we designed around the agent. So what makes us different is ultimately companies like the Open Doors and the iBuyers, they are a direct-to-consumer company. Mm-hmm. So their model is to go acquire the consumer, own that consumer relationship, and then sell that lead to the real estate agent. So when they do partner with a real estate agent, they are effectively competing with that same agent to win the client and then turning around and trying to sell that lead back to the agent. And so the agent may receive a lead, but at a significantly lower net commission rate. Our model is to help agents build and design marketing campaigns so they can acquire consumers directly, own that real that consumer themselves, and then introduce them to Ribbon and keep their entire commission structure. Um, that's one. Two, we don't have any in-house agents. A lot of the iBuyers have in-house agents. So they're actually directly competing for the full 3% commission Mm -hmm. because they believe long-term that there will be a consumer-to-consumer marketplace that they can create and cut the agent out altogether. Um, And so I always tell agents, look at the site. If a website is built and designed for the consumer as the main, main presence versus sites that are built where the agent is the audience that you're speaking to, that tells you what the long-term business model is of the company. And so why has Ribbon decided to partner with agents instead of bringing on your own agents? Or do you plan when you grow as a company to bring on your own agents? Yeah, so we have no plans to bring on own agents ourselves. You have close to 2 million realtors in the country. These are all small business owners. It is a woman-led industry. And our belief is that our thought was, how do you empower not just the home buyer, how do you empower the entire industry? So our thought was we also want to support the small business community, not simply the home buyer community. And so it started from that philosophy. That was the why, which is like, how do you actually make the entire industry better versus trying to displace people for corporate profits? So we started off with that mentality. And we knew that consumers want agents. From a business model perspective, it makes sense because agents bring us clients. So we don't have to spend money to go market directly to consumers because we're partnering with the agents. Operationally, um, when you have the agent involved, that means the consumer has an advocate, has an advisor that's taking them to homes, helping identify homes, working through the inspections process, working through the contract. 
And so it allows us to do what we're really good at, which is create modern financial products and easy ways to make offers. And so by partnering, it is from a marketing perspective and an operation perspective, much more efficient and allows us to scale the business significantly faster, which then allows us to help more and more homeowners. What you're doing is different from iBuying, but it's similar in the sense that you're relying on a pricing models in, in terms of figuring out when you, when you have a consumer, when you have someone that wants a home, you feel that you're able with some degree of accuracy to price that home and confident enough to make a cash offer. So how confident are you in these cash offers, offers and kind of what are you nervous about when you're making the offer and, and what do you feel good about when you're making the offer in terms of the reliability of the price that you're offering? couple of things. One, we, we will always outperform an iBuyer on pricing. And the reason why is like pricing models come down to really one thing, which is access to information, access to data. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the difference between our pricing model and then iBuyer pricing model, take Zillow offers, for example, because they're trying to value every single home and have an always on pricing model. Right. There are homes that are actually on the MLS and listed for sale and there are homes that are not on the MLS listed for sale. But homes are not listed for sale on the MLS. The information you have is very historical, right? Maybe the last time that that home was sold. And then a lot of inferences, a lot of inferences, like a lot of probabilities, but no, no, nothing specific. We are only enabling homes that are on the MLS. So we have all the MLS data for that active home, how many days it's been on the market, all the square footage, everything is up to date because the agent had to update everything before they put on the MLS. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our access to information is, is much different. We will then um, value homes based on MLS data and we have four layers of protection. One is we have a technology-based system, an automation system that will say, we believe this home is priced at $300,000. We then compare that to all the other pricing engines on the market. And if we realize that the variance is above a certain percentage, it automatically gets flagged for an in-house valuations team that are former appraisers in the market that will then underwrite the home. Okay. So that's called like a, an AVM, an AVM plus an ensemble model with a, um, a human oversight of, the, of all the home valuations. Mm-hmm. That's like one layer. And that right there is significantly more protective because you actually have a human layer, you have a technology layer, and you have access to MLS data. And what's, and what's the human, could you explain again what the human layer is? Who's, who's visiting the home again? Yeah, so we have an in-house team um, that are on staff and they're um, historically been appraisers in the markets. So if their home gets flagged, they will then do a desktop underwrite of the home. They will then like look at secondary data sources. They'll look at photos differently. They will like dig in harder and then they'll price the home. So that's like one layer that right there is significantly different because an iBuyer is either just predicting a value of the home without any sort of updated information, or they're asking a questionnaire of which that's human input um, and has not been verified data. And so our level of data is going to be significantly better. Then what happens is once we have an offer accepted, we will then get a third-party broker, another agent that's not party to the transaction to run another valuation of the home, and they will go to that home actually. Mm-hmm. So we get that valuation. Then when the home buyer gets the appraisal, we will often get the appraisal report. So we have all this information on one single home. We only value homes where there's a request for an offer. So we don't have to value every single home in the market. Then we get the third-party agent uh, valuation and we get the appraisal information. 
So one issue when Zillow wound down its iBuying program is that they kind of blamed their price forecasting model. Is there any price forecasting involved in what you guys do? So we, you know, what we typically try to do is we look at where we believe the appraisal market is going to price the home. And then we also look at where do we think the market is actually going to trade. So people are bidding above and beyond the list price to win today. And so we're trying to understand both those numbers. When you're looking at where we think the home will appraise at, there's no future price forecasting. And that's just based on like based on historical comps in this particular home. This is where we think this home will price. And then we'll say, but this market is typically bidding three, four, five percent over the market. Sometimes those appraisals will match, sometimes they won't. And so we are putting some forecasting into there um, to help consumers get more competitive. In order to protect the consumer, we launched appraisal protection. So we were the first company in the country to launch appraisal protection. And so that means if the offer goes in at $310,000, but it can appraise at $305,000, we will fund that $5,000 difference. And so that, that's how we protect the consumer mm-hmm. um, while having a much, much tighter pricing model, also protecting the consumer in those outlier events. Follow-up question to that is sort of, um, any kind of existing weaknesses or, or vulnerabilities to the pricing models of today? Yeah, I think the vulnerability, I think, in the market uh, is that this home buying cycle that we're in is very, very different than other ones. And so when you're running models that are looking at historical patterns and those patterns change, you end up with a lot of variance in pricing. Mm-hmm. And when you underprice, then you lose the offer. So you either you lost the opportunity or you have a loss on the risk. So I think right now the biggest risk is that the market hasn't fully caught up from a pricing perspective to the, the effect of the new normal that we found in 2021. You know, we look at things that are structural problems versus temporary problems. I do think the pricing problem is a temporary problem because when the market, we don't expect 25% year over year growth on housing. Right next year. And we expect that to kind of come back down to three to 5%. And so as home prices start to stabilize, the pricing models will get tighter and tighter. Um, That's why I think with someone like Zillow, I think they hit a pricing hurdle, but they had a perfect storm of issues, which is, you know, it all starts with the fact that they're a public company. Um, They're a public company that has to report publicly every single quarter. Um, And so they have a spotlight on them. Um, in a, as they're trying to figure things out in a way that other private companies are able to go through challenges um, under the cover of, frankly, being a private company, fix those challenges and then kind of take it out. They built this as a public company and operational challenges. And, you know, here's one thing about the iBuyer model, which I have always thought was a risk to their, like a structural problem of risk to them, is if you buy a home as an iBuyer for $300,000, and then 30 days later, you put on the market for $330,000 or $315,000. When the next buyer comes in to buy and they get an appraisal, the appraiser who's looking at comps is going to say the perfect comp for this home is actually this home from 30 days ago. Mm-hmm. So I bought it for $300,000. Now you're selling it for three fifteen. dollars in 30 days later. Tell me what the twelve dollars to $15,000 of improvements are that you put in the home to justify this. So I think they inherently have more appraisal risk and pricing risk because of that model, because they're buying low, selling high. For us, it actually works the opposite, which is when we buy a home for $300,000, we're establishing a comp in the market. 
the buyer's buying it back at $300,000. There's no markup in the price. And in terms of the, the cash offers, it's a very attractive business model, it seems, in a market like this, when there's such high demand and we hear all about bidding wars for homes. But can your model and can sort of the idea of cash offers being so important, can that sustain in sort of a, a housing downturn when there might not be as high demand? Yeah, it's a it's a very good question. So, um, and we've tested the model, even though we've always been operating in a seller market, even pre-pandemic. Yeah, we yeah. We have run tests of what a buyer market environment would look like. So let me share this. So um, when we were first kind of testing out the viability of the business model, we were buying homes all over the $2 million and places like Charlotte or in Nashville. When you get above $700,000 in Charlotte, North Carolina, you are no longer in a seller market. You start to move into a buyer market, right? There are just fewer buyers who are buying a $1.5 million home in Charlotte than, um, than a $250,000 home in Charlotte. And the model worked not only as well, but actually outperformed in those environments. And the reason why is that when you shift from a seller market to a buyer market, the need for seller certainty increases dramatically because now there's only one offer in the home, not seven. So that seller is going to even optimize even more so for certainty of close. And what they'll usually do is they'll say, okay, I will not only optimize more for certainty of close, I will actually even offer the home for you that's a little bit cheaper in exchange for that certainty. So what will happen is the value proposition to a home buyer um, in today's market is bid to win. Mm -hmm. In a buyer market, it's bid to earn a cash discount. So typically we see three to 10% 10 cash discounts um, in markets that are more buyer friendly. Let's look at the big picture for a second of the real estate market, because I think there's a lot of temptation for smart people or people with money to look at the real estate market and be like, huge total addressable market. Things have been kind of the same for a while where real estate agents you know, mediate the transactions. This is an industry due for change. What do you see as sort of changes that are happening now in developing business models, including yours, that will last in five to 10 years from now, like where do you see real estate going in terms of actual concrete changes that may happen in the way people buy and sell homes, the way people make money off of real estate, and what is sort of ephemeral right now and we may forget about in a few years? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I think the, the number one principle we have a capital markets problem in this country. We do not have a real estate broker problem in this country. Mm. I do not believe uh, new tech startups that are trying to compete with the agent is going to be something that creates lift for the overall industry. I think that's going to be shifting a market share, right? So that's like a shifting a market share equation. And I think the pressure, what we'll see 10 years from now is I do believe you will see of the close to 2 million realtors in the country, a percentage of those agents that will move to become an in-house agent at a company where they are salaried W-2 um, for just the financial stability. But I think the agents that you will see move into those types of business models are typically agents that are doing four to six transactions a year, not doing mm -hmm. 20, 25, 30 transactions. Economically, it doesn't make sense. 
if I'm doing 30 transactions a year, it makes more sense to collect commission structure than to work for W-2. And so I think you'll see a shift between 1099 and W-2. I think from a worker classification, I think that will happen. And that's going to be really movement of market share, not making the overall pie bigger. Um, I think the, um, so I think that is a trend. I think it's an interesting trend, but not something that really creates a lot of innovation or a better consumer experience. Um, I think where there is an opportunity to create a larger pie for everyone is actually more in capital markets-based solutions in the financing side. Mm-hmm. To be able to, because what that will do is it creates accessibility. 40% of all renters in the country today are mortgage eligible and have no idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Education becomes a problem. So by by creating more flexible and alternative home financing programs, you'll actually create more accessibility. And that will actually create more housing demand. So the problem today is the fun, like the crux of the problem is that we operate, it's the largest market in the world and it's illiquid. Right. Like imagine trying to go to E-Trade and say, I want to buy a share of Apple and I'll find out 51 days from now whether that's going to trade or not. And the price may or may not be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to create a liquid market, you need to have very strong buyer-seller behavior, and you need the ability for the transaction to happen very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that level of liquidity will create more behavior in the housing market, and there'll be more trading in the, in the housing market. And that's where I think modern home ownership over the next 10 years will have the benefits of owning, but the flexibility of renting. Mm-hmm. That's how you speed up the transaction, you'll get more and more transactions for you. And that's how all boats can float and everyone can benefit from that. That's where I think long-term value creation is in the market. At some point, if any one company is truly owning all these homes, like iBuyers, the right. federal government or local government will step in and say, you can't have that much pricing power in a market. Mm-hmm. It's like a fundamentally flawed concept from day one. And so I think it's about providing liquidity into the transaction. Money is the center of the transaction. I mean, this is a lot, a lot for me to think about. One thing when I think about liquidity, and this might not quite be what you're talking about, but I think about like one of the things that companies are doing now in, in terms of providing liquidity into the market is, is that a lot of the homes that they're dealing with are homes that might already be kind of liquid, like homes in maybe like Sunbelt regions that are already kind of similar to each other and, and are easier to buy and sell. Like, how do you sort of create liquidity in like, you know, like a suburb of Boston or, or something? Uh, great question. Because if you actually, if you kind of look back at how the iBuyers started, they started in Phoenix. Right. One of the reasons why Phoenix is a hotbed, every iBuyer is in Phoenix. Um, why? Because Phoenix is typically newer homes and they're track homes. So you go into a community and all the homes are structurally the same. So it's easier to price those homes, really easy to price those homes. But when you go to the suburbs of Boston, when you go to places where the home, the aging of the housing stock is older and where as a result of being older, homes get improvements and they get additions. And so every five or 10 years, they all look a little bit different and the homes feel more custom. And I think that's the limitation of the iBuyer model is because it's really hard to price those. Right. And so that's where models that are built off of homes on the MLS is so important. Our view is the iBuyers will have 3 to 5% market share. We just care about the other 95% market share in the country. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of mortgage eligible people. I think that's a really interesting concept. I was I was at the realtors convention a couple of weeks ago and they were talking about like there's low black home ownership rates. There's, you know, hundreds of thousands of black Americans that have high credit scores, salaries that are enough to buy a home, but they're just not interested or not being educated, as you put it, about potentially, you know, this being a good investment. I guess, though, the the flip side of that, though, is that there's so much demand in the market right now is that if we kind of increase the pool of like potential homeowners, how does that work with sort of this fact that there's just not enough homes in America right now? Yeah, and there's two parts to that question. One is, how do we make sure that we have a level playing field and yeah. we have diversity um, in, of home ownership um, is one. And then two is let's fast forward and assume that companies like Ribbon are able to get to that point. And now you have two times the number of home buyers in the market. It doesn't change yeah. the fact that there's not enough um, home supply on the market. One, so the, the reason to be for us as a company and the mission of the company is to make home ownership achievable. And I, going back to your prior question, most companies look at this as a pot of gold, $30 trillion industry, and it mm-hmm. has not been disrupted. We look at this more from a home ownership perspective because of the background of our team and the founders um, has always been around inaccessible, things that are inaccessible to us. Mm-hmm. And, and so we look at home ownership rates by demographic. And it is, one of the most disheartening things that you will see is you'll see the black home ownership rates are probably close to 40 to 60% of what white home ownership rate looks like in the country. You look at Latin community home ownership rates. You look at the LGBTQIA home ownership rates. Mm-hmm. You look at anything in this country that is underrepresented, and you're also seeing it being underrepresented in the single most important asset class in the world. Right. So how do we specifically solve this? You see this come up in two places. You will have someone that has an underrepresented, that will be from an underrepresented minority group that will actually know that they can make a mortgage, make an offer, and they're often bidding with a VA or an FHA mortgage, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is the lowest accept rate of any offers in the country Yeah, because of systemic bias. There's like structural and systemic bias. And people look at those and they associate it with a certain buyer type and those offers get declined. Um, the VA and the FHA are very powerful mortgage products and they should be used more. Um, what, we, what we do is we remove that. So you might be an FHA or VA buyer, but now you're bidding and what the seller is seeing is a cash offer. Mm-hmm. So we, that's how we help level people up so that the offers that they're making are actually the best offers and people are not associating their offer with some implied perspective of who they may be behind the scenes. And so what it does uh, create is an interesting problem, which is there's just not enough homes in the market. So I think there's a short term and a long term on this. Um, One, we are very very dependent right now on new construction. Yeah. And new construction, September was a a really strong month for new, new construction, but overall, we understand the supply shortages. We understand the labor shortages and the inability for homes to be built fast enough. Um, so that's one. Um, and there's a whole community of people working on like just how to help create more home supply. Uh, and we like very much advocate and support that. Um, then you have situations where you actually have housing stock. 
that housing stock is actually going to investors. Mm-hmm. Over $100 billion of homes in this country have been purchased in the last nine months by institutional investors, not including- well, what, was, what was that number again? Over $100 billion. Really? Yeah. Of institutional capital. And so the way we actually create more home supply is making more of the housing supply that's available in the market more accessible to the consumer. And so if you were to look, they're posting right now about 6.3 to 6.4 million homes will be sold this year. How many are being sold to everyday consumers where that will be the primary residence? How many do we, do you have an estimate? I think it's going to be, I think that number is going to come out closer to of that total number there no one really knows but i suspect that number is going to be 75 to 80 percent okay and um, how, maybe how would that compare to, to prior years so it's getting worse because there's always been local investors in the market mm-hmm. but now what's happening is you've got big institutional investors from wall street with tons and tons of capital um, and then you've got consumers who buy their second and third homes yeah Right. Someone who's living in New York City, they've got a beautiful $4 million apartment in New York City, and they're also working in a hedge fund. They have all this free cash, and they're like, you know, I may may decide I want to go visit Nashville once. I might as well live in my <laughs> for those three days. Mm-hmm. And so you have all this money flowing in, and what it's creating is a gentrification of the middle class. And you're seeing this. Like, Look at Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Tennessee, if you just drive down um, the outskirts of Nashville, Tennessee, and you drive from Nashville to Huntsville, you have people yeah. that are every single day being displaced that are local community members from Nashville, and they're moving to Huntsville, Alabama because of affordability of housing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so by our, our underlying programs, not only make uh, create more education, more awareness for people to enter the market, but it gives those who are in the market a higher chance of actually winning the housing stock that's available. Yeah, And I believe fundamentally that the role of an investor is important in housing. But the role of an investor should be funding programs like ourselves as their participation, or when there is no consumer demand to step in to provide the liquidity to a home seller. Mm-hmm. Um, but the consumer always should have the right of first refusal on a home. I mean, if, if we're competing in a market that, as you say, there's more and more corporate investors, does that mean that in the future, Ribbon will have to like go up against other cash offers when it makes it a, its own cash offer. Like, is there going to be just a higher proliferation of cash offers where somebody might be like, well, a corporate investor will pay 305 in cash while you're paying 300 in cash? Yeah. So this happens uh, 1,500 times a day for us. Okay. Or almost every single offer that a Ribbon backed buyer is making is going up against another corporate cash offer. Or going up against a corporate cash travel. And in almost every single situation, um, they because the, the investors have gotten really, really good. What they have done, A, there's many more of them, so they have more coverage of the country. And in order for them to compete, they're doing different segments. So they're starting to increase their segmentation of like homes that they'll actually buy. And they built effectively high-frequency trading machines. They'll suck in the information. They know the types of homes that they want to buy. Once it sees it in their model, they automatically trigger an offer on the home. Um, We had a situation where there was um, a home that had, um, I think it was 24 total offers. Every offer was a cash offer. Wow. We had another situation where there was 117 offers on a home 
And the overwhelming majority of those offers were cash offers. And so if you're sitting with a mortgage offer, right now, mortgage-backed offer, home sellers and listing agents, they're just not even looking at these. If they got like six cash offers, because in order for investors to be, they are no longer the bottom dwellers of price. They're actually coming in at market value or above. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're getting very competitive with these offers. And, you know, as a company and as a mission, what worries us, what worries us is that if, um, if we don't scale fast enough, there's a high risk that this country turns into a renter nation. And that's our biggest concern. And it's a concern of the federal government. Anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, no, I think, you know, I, by the way, this was great. It was, it was very comprehensive. Um, no, my only, my only comment is that when people are looking at companies in the space, um, to really look at two things, what is someone doing in service of the consumer and mm-hmm. what we're doing in the service of the ecosystem? You know, we are elated to be on the right side of history to power the ecosystem and to not be called a disruptor but rather be called a facilitator. Like we yeah. love to facilitate and just take our, we, are, we provide a, a small piece into the transaction and we're really happy doing that. Well, Chevelle Shaw, CEO of Ribbon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Looking for more insight into what will happen in 2022? Or maybe you need more information on what in the world is happening with the federal regulators. Or you could just be looking for information on how to stay competitive as the industry shifts to a purchase-focused market. Our HW Plus Premium Membership comes with all of this insight and more. With your HW Plus Membership, you'll get at least five HW Plus articles a week that dive deeper into the daily news to help you confidently make business decisions. To join, go to housingwire.com forward slash membership. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. I hope you have a great afternoon. If you haven't already, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on all the hottest stories crossing our news desk daily. The podcast is now available wherever you like to listen. Make sure to tune in tomorrow.